John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, begins with a man who reads the scriptures and becomes convicted of his sin and his need to repent and be forgiven so that he might have peace with God. He lives, in the beginning of the story, in the city of destruction, and him and all his countrymen are alienated from God. And when he comes to terms with this reality, he flees from that city to find peace with God at the cross of Christ. When he encounters the cross, the heavy burden of sin falls off of his back and rolls away from him. This is how Bunyan describes it. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulchre. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. And that's how Pilgrim's Progress ends. Christian is at peace with God, the burden of sin is lifted off of his back and he stands in wonder and gladness. Now, if you've read that book, then you know that that's not, in fact, how the story ends. In my copy of the book, at least, uh, that event takes place on page 36, just 36 out of 190 pages. After encountering the cross, Christian still has over 80% of his journey to go before he experiences the fullness of joy and final rest in the celestial city. And much of that journey is through dangerous enemy territories, fighting evil opponents, wrestling against doubts and fears, straying from the narrow way at times, and many other challenging encounters. That's the reality of the Christian life. If you have been walking with Christ for any length of time, then you know this personally. Life after coming to Christ is full of blessing and joy, but in many ways, it becomes more difficult than life before we came to know Christ. We face outward pressures and circumstances as well as inward weaknesses and blindness that would seek to deter us from continuing to follow the Lord. And yet, the scriptures call us to remain steadfast and immovable in the midst of them all. And the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 43, is instructive for us as we seek to navigate those outward battles and inward weaknesses as disciples of Christ. We will see in this psalm a man in need of God's intervention as he faces the oppressive actions of unbelievers. We'll also see a man in need of God's leadership to lead him once again into God's presence that he might be reminded of the greatness of the one he serves. And then we will see a man in need of reminding himself of the great hope that he has in God.
Let's read Psalm 43 together. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and just an unjust man, deliver me. For you are, are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43 begins with a cry to the Lord for intervention. The psalmist asks God to vindicate him and to defend his cause. That word uh, vindicate is, is such an important theological term. It literally means Show me to be in the right. And we often use it when we are referring to our relationship with God. For God to vindicate us in that sense means for him to show us to be free of guilt or wrongdoing. This is what happens when we come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. Our record of wrongdoing is erased and replaced with the perfect record of Jesus. And therefore, in the eyes of God, we are innocent. We are vindicated. That is true for every person here who is a disciple of Christ. Before God, you are vindicated. But here, the psalmist is using the term not in a vertical way referring to our relationship to God, but in a horizontal way. There's no indication about what the specific circumstances are that he's facing. But what we do know is that as he says in verse 2, he is being oppressed by his enemies. And he describes these enemies in verse 1 as ungodly, deceitful, and unjust. What's important about these three descriptors is that they all have God as their point of reference. Do you see that? These people are ungodly, meaning they do not embody the character of God. They are deceitful, meaning they do not speak the truth of God. And they are unjust, meaning they do not carry out the justice of God. And the fact that the writer is pleading with God for vindication means that he is seeking to live in a godly, honest, and just way and is asking God to demonstrate that the way that he has chosen is indeed the right way. Vindicate me. Show me to be in the right. He has committed to honor God with his life and do what is pleasing in God's sight. He has, as he says in verse 2, taken refuge in God. But at the moment... It seems like those who are at odds with God and at odds with him have the upper hand over him. Have you ever felt like that? You have committed to following Christ and doing what is right in his sight. And yet there are those around you who couldn't care less about God 
and they seem to be prospering beyond you. Or to make it more personal, have there ever been those in your life who oppose you directly with ungodly, deceitful, and unjust tactics that seem to have the upper hand in the circumstance? Maybe a, a scheming co-worker or a vindictive ex-husband or wife, a mean sibling or friend, a contentious neighbor maybe. All of us are promised by Jesus himself that in this world you will face trouble. Because just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, even though we ourselves have fled from the city of destruction and found refuge in the cross of Christ, we still live in a world full of those who oppose God and therefore will oppose us as we seek to live for God. But what we learn from the psalmist here in verse 1 is that in such, in such situations, our first response should be to lash out against our oppressor and seek retaliation. Oh wait, no. That's not what we learn. Instead, we see that the psalmist turn his attention heavenward and make his appeal to God to be vindicated and defended. He is this writer. After all, he has chosen the path in life that he's on for the glory of God. He has sought refuge in God to show that God is a shelter for his people, like we just sang. He has sought to live godly and upright in order to show that God's way is best. And so, it is with this confidence that the very reputation of God is at stake in the lives of his people that the psalmist appeals to God to be vindicated and defended, since it is ultimately the honor of God's name that is being defended when God defends his people. That is the confidence that we can and must have when we encounter evil or evil people who would seek to do us harm. That God has so invested in us, in the lives of his people, that we bear his name and his own reputation is at stake in us. He will vindicate us and defend our cause because... He is eager to vindicate and defend his own cause that is at work in our lives. That's the connection that anchors verse 1 and 2 together. Look at the word for at the beginning of verse 2. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me for or because... You are the God in whom I take refuge. <clears throat> the reason that the writer can confidently appeal to God for his intervention is because he has lived in such a way to demonstrate that, God, that the God of the Bible is a safe refuge for his people. He has banked everything on the conviction that the word and the promises of God are true and so he appeals to God to fulfill his word and uphold his reputation as the trustworthy one whom his people can confidently obey. 
That is why the Pilgrim's Progress story doesn't end on page 36. Because once you encounter God at the cross of Christ and are forgiven of your sin and given life in Christ, you then become a testimony or a living epistle, as the Apostle Paul calls it. And your very life of faith and obedience testify to the world around you that the God of Scripture is truly alive and worthy to be served. And the worthiness of this God is made most clear through our lives when we experience trials, tribulations, persecutions, oppressions, as the psalmist calls it. It is in those moments that it becomes clear to the watching world and clear even to us that God is the one who is our exceeding treasure, not the temporal blessings that may come to us in this life as we walk with him. We are living for God when we are living for God and all outward appearances would seem to indicate that the favor of God and all, and, and that we may, uh, sorry, that all outward appearances may seem to indicate that the favor of God is not upon us when even inwardly we may feel a sense of rejection from God because of our current circumstances, like the psalmist says in verse 2, it is then that it is shown more clearly than ever that our deepest need and our greatest treasure is God himself. And that's what the psalmist needed to be reminded of. He has made his appeal to God for intervention. And now we see him in verse three and four, make his request to God to lead him into his presence. Verse three and four say this, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre Oh God, my God. Here in these verses, we see the heart of the psalmist more fully displayed. Though he has appealed to God for intervention and defense, here he shows that more than a change in his circumstances and more even than relief from his oppressors, his desire is to draw near to God. Those things, the relief, the intervention are mere means, but this is the end goal that he's after. He desires to be in God's dwelling place. God is his exceeding joy and his ultimate object of desire, not peace or freedom from trials, but just to be in the presence of his God. And so he asks the Lord, to lead him into his presence. In the Old Testament, the worship of God was very geographically oriented and the people of God would gather to the temple in Jerusalem where the altar was and express their praise and adoration to God. This is the reason for all the, the location specific language in verse three and four, your holy hill, your dwelling, the altar of God. It seems that whatever oppression the psalmist is experiencing, it has forced him away 
from Jerusalem and made him unable to go to the temple and praise God. His longing was to return, not in order to resume the comforts and routines of life, but so that he can gather in the congregation of worshipers and praise his God. He could not, in his own wisdom, overcome the hindrances or the circumstances that are keeping him from there. And so he asked God to send out his light and his truth to lead him. God's light and truth, often throughout scripture, representing his spirit and his word, the psalmist knows that he is in need of both of these. He needs God's truth as his roadmap, giving him instruction. And he needs God's spirit as his guide, giving him wisdom. In his case, it was a very physical journey to a specific geographic location that he desired to reach, the dwelling place, the temple of God. But this physical temple in Jerusalem was just a foreshadow of the true temple of God, the true dwelling place of God where God would meet with man. Jesus in John 1 made a statement that at the time was somewhat cryptic, but when understood reveals a glorious reality for us who are Christians. When he was asked for a sign to substantiate his claims of authority and sonship, he said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Those listening to him at the time thought that he was referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem, so John's gospel continues. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John says. Jesus the incarnate God came to bring the unmediated presence of God to the world. And once and for all, do away with the sacrificial system that the whole temple centered around, which, which people like you and I, sinful people, needed to cleanse us as we would draw near to God. Jesus would be the place, be the one who would vindicate us in the sight of God. By his death and his resurrection three days later, Jesus closed the chasm that separated man from God and thereby became the meeting place where sinful man could draw near to a holy God and dwell in his presence. This is why Jesus in John 4 says this, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God, through the preaching of the good news, through the evangelization around the good news of Jesus's victory over sin and death, sends out his light and his truth to lead people to himself. He is not calling them to a physical temple, but to a spiritual union with Christ through repentance and faith. 
This union with Christ brings us into the very presence of God and opens our spiritual eyes to behold His glory and to know Him as our exceeding joy. But even this union that we have with God in this life is itself, like the temple of the Old Testament, still a foreshadow of the full experience of God's presence that we will one day know when in his immediate presence in the new heavens and in the new earth. As we make our pilgrimage to that great day, we will, like the psalmist and like Christian in Bunyan's story, encounter many trials and difficulties. We will come face to face with people who would oppress us or seek to persuade us to turn away from the narrow way. But in this, we can be confident that if God was willing to send his light and his truth in the form of his dear son, Jesus, to call us to himself and make us his very own, then he will not withhold anything from us that we need to continue pressing forward through even the greatest challenges and the deepest valleys. That is the glorious hope that we see the Apostle Paul unfold in Romans chapter 8. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul is sure of these things. That is the essence of faith. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so, anchored in the love of God, demonstrated throughout history and most clearly in Christ, we have hope that God will see us through every desert every mountain range, every rushing river that goes over our head, and every dangerous wilderness along the way. And now, returning to Psalm 43, in verse 5, we find a transformed man. The one whose soul, just three verses earlier, was mourning and feeling rejected by God, has now been led by the light and truth of God and given new confidence that God will indeed give him victory. And so instead of listening to his heart, 
he speaks to it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The spirit and the word, the, the light and the truth of God have reoriented and reestablished this man's confidence. He sees his cast down, turmoiled state as incongruent with God's truth. And so he calls his soul to lift its gaze, to look ahead at the deliverance of God that is surely coming. Notice the future tense language in this verse. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I will again praise him. This writer is, as far as we can, as far as we can tell, still in the same circumstances that he was in, in verse 1 and 2. This is why he call, calls himself to hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, the Bible says in Romans 8. And so it's not a change in circumstance that has brought about this change in tune and this heart of praise, but rather it's a rehearsal of God's truth and an encounter with God's spirit. This is what we need, brothers and sisters. We need this every day as the winds of the world blow in our face, as the challenges of life seek to discourage us as the opposition of the ungodly would derail us from our path and as even the the weakness and sinfulness of our own hearts would betray us we need to be anchored every day in the truth of god's word and the power of god's spirit to remain a hopeful people confident in the loving god who causes all things to work for our good in all circumstances to lead us into his eternal dwelling place. We need, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, to know what is the hope to which God has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inherit inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? I'll finish by reading how John Bunyan's allegory actually ends. This is an excerpt from the last scene where Christian finally reaches the celestial city and is being told what he is about to experience. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you, you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall receive, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon earth, sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. The men then asked, what must we do in the holy place? To whom it was answered, you must there receive the comfort of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king. 
In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desired to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into equipment fit to ride out with the King of glory. When he shall come with sounds of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind, you shall come with him. And when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment, you shall sit by him. Yea, when he shall pass sentence upon all the workers of iniquity, let them be angels or men, you also shall have a voice in that judgment because they were his and your enemies. Also, when he shall again return to the city, you shall go too with sound of trumpet and be ever with him. That is what awaits us. Let us, as the people of God, hope in God until our hope becomes our experience, until our faith becomes sight. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for such an incorruptible gift that you have given to us in Christ, stored up for us in heaven with you. And thank you that you are keeping us by your power, that we may one day experience the the fullness of joy and the riches and pleasures forevermore that are at your right hand. We thank you, God, for your providence, your kind providence in our lives that works all things for our good. We thank you for making us more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you walk with us, that you fill us with your spirit, that we might overcome every trial, that we might see beyond every difficulty to that great day. Make us a hopeful people, Lord. Keep our eyes ever forward toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.